0: If um, if you were here last Sunday you might have noticed I wasn't here um, my lovely wife and I uh, spent the weekend up in Frankenmuth we were celebrating our 42nd wedding anniversary I know we were just like 13 <laughs> no no I'm not saying it for that it's all save it for my wife save it for my wife we were like 13 when we got married um, so uh, so but but when we we're up there if you ever get up back up to if you ever get up to Frankenmuth um, and I'm not a paid endorser at all. Uh, if you ever get up to Frankenmuth, go to Mac, Zach and Max Candies. Um, they've got, they've got a, a, a chocolate-covered caramel toffee that um, comes in bars. Um, it's, just, it's just amazing. And if you, if you buy some and don't think it's amazing, I will reimburse you. Uh, <laughs> but if you think it's amazing, you have to share some with me too. I got to tell you, I did not buy nearly enough. But we had a great weekend, and, and it was just a wonderful celebration. Um, so so, so it's, been, it's been two weeks. So we're back into John. It's been two weeks since we've been in John. And, and I just want to recap, since it's been two weeks, I want to recap where we've been. Um, we're, we're now moving from Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, heading toward his trial. Um, we saw two weeks ago... How, how, how in his rashness, uh, as Jesus was being arrested, how in his rashness, Peter took a sword and, and cut off the ear of a guard. Um, and, and, and we saw two weeks ago how in, in his rebuke of Peter, how Jesus saved Peter from himself. And, and as we're going to see later, we're not there yet, but as we're going to see later, Jesus could have done, would have done the same thing for Judas if, if Judas had only let him, if Judas' Judas's heart had only been opened to Christ saving him from himself as well. And as we see, Jesus has a way of doing that, of always being the one sometimes sacrificially, who saves us from ourselves. So that's who we see right here in John 18. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so every day, every day we have a decision to make. Are we going to let Jesus decide what he wants for us? Or are we going to decide? what we want for us every day see that that question that decision every day we get up in the morning and we begin our morning that that question is before us every day we have to decide that is it is it jesus way or is it my way see one of the things a little side note one of the things sometimes people ask uh used to be in the past people ask and it's and it's the wrong way to ask it but people would ask is Jesus Christ your lord and savior see you can you can you, can you hear in that why that's the wrong way to ask that question is a, it's not a question of is he your lord and savior but have you got to that point in your life when you have recognized that he is your lord and savior and have you invited him into your heart do you see the difference Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And so every morning we get up, we ask this question. Every day we have to decide: is it it Jesus' way, my Lord and Savior's way, or or is it my way? Where we're at now is three teachable moments from what happened when Jesus was arrested. We have three teachable moments from what happened when Jesus was arrested. The first teachable moment is who do we look to for power? That's that's a decision. See, we see that in the rashness of Peter's response, right? Peter was looking to himself for power. He was deciding for himself what to do. That's a question we have to decide every day. Who do we look to for power? Do I look to my own strength? Do I look to my own cleverness? My own ingenuity? Do I look to somebody else's strength? Do I do I do I look to money as my source of power? Do I look at my position in life as my source of power? See, this, this moment right here in Gethsemane teaches us that there's power. In Jesus' name. Again, going back two weeks, when when Peter lopped off that guard's ear, who was it that immediately intervened? Who was it that immediately took control of the situation? Right, it was Jesus. Jesus spoke, and they listened. Jesus spoke, and the guards did not react. The other soldiers did not react. The commander, Jesus spoke. The commander of the soldiers did not intervene. All of them in that moment, they all deferred to Jesus because there is authority in his voice. There is command in his words. Jesus spoke and he had command of the situation. Who do we look to for power? We look to Jesus Christ. The second thing, the second teachable moment is who or what do we allow to command us? Who's driving our decisions? Who's informing our sense of purpose in our lives? Who or what do we allow to command us? See, that's a decision we face every day. And sometimes, right? Sometimes we know this. Sometimes we listen to the wrong commands. Sometimes we let the commands of, of others that aren't of Christ or aren't of God direct our lives. We let the wrong things order us around. One of my favorite, one of my favorite is, is that, is that it's, it's such an empty cliche it is, so, it is so vacuous, that that, that, that that notion of, you just, I'm just following my heart. Have you ever heard anything so vapid as that? I'm, I'm just, I think one celebrity said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And then he went on to do some horrible things, right? Make some horrible decisions, hurtful. Hurtful decisions. Follow your heart. See, the heart... The heart can be deceitful. And and the Bible spells that out over and over. And so there's no wonder. I mean, if you spend your day following your heart, there's no wonder some people feel beat up at the end of the day because they've listened too much to the wrong voice. And it happens to all of us. But see, we, we have a God who who forgives us and empowers us to listen to the right voices, to give us the direction in in life that is most needful. So the third teachable moment here is who do we look to for protection? Who do we look to for protection. Of course, there are practical things, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about... Of course, we have insurance. You have life insurance. We have car insurance. Of course, you wear your seat belts. I mean, that's, that's, that's common sense protection. Of course, as they say, when the light turns green, you wait two or three seconds before you go, right? Because that, that's a wise and common sense thing. That's protective, in the summertime you wear sunscreen you wear a hat you stay out of the sun why because it's protective so there are common sense ways that we are protected but the but the question this asks is, is who do we look to to protect us from sin and death because those are the those are the those are the real threats at the end of life who do we look to to protect us from sin and death Who do we look to to protect us from worry and hopelessness? You see, that's another one of those things, right, that wears you out at the end of the day. And sometimes it it, it continues on in the night, the worry, the worry. Who protects you from that? Who protects you from doubt and despair? And so what we're going to see is that, and what we see in the garden here, the The big lesson is that Jesus Christ protects us from worry and despair. Jesus Christ protects us from sin and death. He protects us against things that torment the mind and the spirit. Because you can't can't buy any kind of insurance to to safeguard your inner treasures, right? That's That's what Jesus Christ does. Only he can do that. So there is, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is, there is power and command in the voice of Jesus Christ. So here's something else we saw happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny thing we see happening, not a ha-ha funny thing, but a ah, it's interesting kind of funny thing that we see happening in the Garden they all came to arrest Jesus. We established two weeks ago that it was between 12 and 200 men, most of them armed, both temple guards and Roman soldiers. It's this, this, this slew of people. They all came to arrest Jesus with their commanders. And yet, and yet who's in charge? Right? Do you get the sense of that? Who's in charge? It's it's Jesus. They all came to arrest him, yet Jesus was the one in control. Jesus was arrested, and yet he showed them who he really was. He did not evade. He did not avoid. But he showed them who he really was. So here's where we're going to pick things up. John 18, after the arrest of Jesus we next see Jesus face the religious court, and here's how it happened. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So who's, who's, who's the one in charge of the temple management? Who's the temple authority in charge? It's, it's, it's Caiaphas, right? We see that, it's Caiaphas is in charge. Annas is not in charge in this cycle. He hasn't been in charge for several years but he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and so why? Why do they bring him first to Annas? It's because of who he was. From AD 6 to AD 15, Annas was the high priest. He was the power, the authority. During, during his administration, I mean, a guy like Annas in today's world could write a, a book on marketing and management and be a very successful uh, uh, speaker about marketing and management because he, he, he was very brilliant and wise in how he set, set up the, the temple functions. He set up how the money was to be exchanged, he set up how the sacrificial offerings were to be sold he built the temple culture and after that after that following annas his sons and a grandson and now a son-in-law acted as high priest they were the administrators of the system the brilliant system that annas had set up and so and so now with the arrest of jesus There's there's homage paid to Annas as Jesus is brought first to him. He is the power behind the power. And don't forget, you may be remembering right now something that Jesus did early in his ministry. At one point in his ministry, Jesus went into the temple. And do you remember what he did? He overturned the tables. He drove out the merchants and the money changers. He was upending, a decade and a half later, he was upending that which Annas had put in place. And so, of course, Annas didn't like it then and he doesn't like it now. And as we're going to see, it's never a good thing when the power behind the power holds a grudge. So they bring Jesus first to Annas. And as this all unfolds, an incredible series of events happened. And they happened along every step of the trial of Jesus. The interesting thing, when we look at this trial in Charging Jesus with breaking the law. It's interesting that in charging Jesus with breaking the law, they themselves are the ones who are breaking the law. They break the law every step of the way in their prosecution of Jesus. And not just once. We're going to see how over and over again, they treat Jesus in a way differently than they would have treated anybody else. They treat Jesus differently in the way that the law says an accused is supposed to be treated. And some basic things, we're gonna look at some basic things and then we're gonna look at some other specific things, but some some basic things is, first of all, they, they didn't have the right number of witnesses in the trials they held. There was a prescribed amount of witnesses that are supposed to bear testimony, and they didn't do that. They also had witnesses that didn't agree on the basic facts of what Jesus is being charged with. Not only that, but the nature of the accusation was changed in the trial. You know it's not a good thing, right? When the prosecution goes fishing for charges and those charges get changed in the course of the trial. When they tried Jesus before the religious court, they tried him for blasphemy. When they tried Jesus before the Roman courts, they tried him for treason. Why? Why did they change the charges? Because in Roman court, treason brought with it the death penalty. And so they changed the charges from blasphemy to treason. Another thing we need to understand is that anyone arrested on a capital charge could not be arrested at night. You could not arrest someone on a capital charge at night. But what do we see in our passage? We see in our passage, when, when did they come to arrest Jesus? At night. They brought torches and lanterns so they could see. And as we talked about two weeks ago, one of the reasons they had torches and lanterns with them was in case Jesus ran, they could go after him. So clearly, they're arresting him at night. Another thing is when someone is arrested on capital charges, no one associated with that person could be a part of the arrest process. Are you clicking with a name right now? When anyone is arrested on capital charges, no one associated with that person could be a part of the process. But who is directly and instrumentally associated with the process? It's Judas. One of Jesus' disciples, the man who has been associating with Jesus for three years It is he who says, the man that I kiss, you will arrest him. He's the one. So no Jewish trial could be held at night. All the trials in Jesus' case were held at night. Also, the court was not immediately to pass judgment on a capital crime. In other words, after you hear the evidence, you have to wait A day, at least one day has to pass before the court can return with a verdict. And so any court immediately passing judgment was breaking the law. Another thing that was violated was that witnesses had to be called before the prisoner was questioned. And what do we see happening? Jesus is immediately questioned. Immediately questioned before anyone else. It's the first thing Annas does, he questioned Jesus. Another thing was that no one could be asked a self-incriminating question. What does that sound like to you? We have an amendment, right? What's our amendment? Yeah. I think it's the 5th amendment, right? Right? You cannot you I take the 5th. No one can be asked a self-incriminating question. That was their protection. That was their 5th amendment. And yet and yet right away they wanted Jesus to testify against himself. These these moments and they're important. Because these moments lay bare the lawlessness in people's hearts. They lay bare. When you are out to get someone, it doesn't matter what rule of law you violate, right? Because it's in your heart to destroy that person, and that's what's going on here. These moments lay bare the lawlessness of evil men's hearts. And Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Look at what happened next, beginning with verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, when we read that, keep in mind, remember, remember, you're, you can't ask, they should be asking other people questions first. But they go right to Jesus. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what i said remember as we've already seen jesus is in charge he is in command and what is jesus doing he is reminding them about their duty under the law he is pointing out that they have broken with protocol Ask my disciples. Ask the people who have heard me teaching. I have done nothing in, in, in private. And now look at their, and this, and this. And this is how, how angry and cornered people always respond. Listen to their response. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him. In the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I say something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high chief. High priest. So Jesus, Jesus is slapped on the cheek. And what does Jesus do? Right? He turns the other cheek. Jesus, there is no retribution. He turns the other cheek. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't slap back. But notice Neither does he back down. He asks them, I have spoken. He says, I have spoken to you truthfully. Why do you respond to me in anger? See, Jesus didn't let them run all over him. He didn't back down from the truth. But in love, Jesus was standing for the truth. And so he says, why are you Why are you striking out at that? Annas knew Jesus was right, so he sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's the end of the Jewish part of the trial. We don't hear anymore from the Jewish end of the trial. What naturally happens is then when Jesus is remanded over to Caiaphas, basically where Caiaphas is, it's a walk across the street to a building, another building. So it would have been a walk across the street to another building. John doesn't give us any of those details. Jesus appears before Caiaphas, but we don't hear of that. We go straight then from from Annas to Caiaphas, now to Pilate, the governor. Here's here's what I find fascinating. As, As Jesus moved through these trials, he looked more and more innocent while they looked more and more guilty. Most people, when treated unfairly, I think it's human nature in all of us, most of us, most of the time, when treated unfairly, would get angrier and angrier. Every step of the way, these people behaved wretchedly. They were just awful. And when that happens to us, our first, our gut tells us to get indignant. Sometimes we wonder where God is in all of this. Why isn't God doing something about this? But the reality is we see it here. the reality is that sometimes life is unfair. Sometimes people do behave horribly, but just because life is unfair never means that God is not involved or that God loves us any less. Because the truth is, and we know this, the truth is, life sometimes is unfair. That happens. One of those great teachable moments with a child, because every child has uttered at least once, that's not fair. And, I, and you know, right, a great teachable moment with any child is to say, life isn't always fair. The big question is, how are you going to respond to that? You can sit there and complain all you want that life is unfair. But how are you going to move beyond that? Life is unfair. Life isn't always fair. But see, as we learned last week, last month, we talked about joy last month. And one of the things we said was, was that, that, that no type, if you are in Christ, no type of unfairness can squash your joy, right? We looked at that. And, and, and we're all trying to live out of that truth. The Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So life is unfair, rejoice, be joyful. Don't let life's unfairness crush Your joy. Can we all say amen? Amen. I agree. So here's what God does when life is unfair. He is always working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So life is unfair. God isn't. But God is always working to use the unfair things that happen to us and around us to work them for his, per, through his perfect power for his glory right here in John 18 God is using the unfair and unholy things done to Jesus to get Jesus right where he needs to be the cross of Calvary Though we can already see the verdict in all this. It came, they knew what they were gonna do. Are you with me on that? They knew going into the trial where Jesus was gonna end up. Jesus was innocent. The louder they shouted, the more accusations they brought, the more they tried to twist things, the more innocent Jesus looked by remaining silent. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, Pilate said, what charges do you have against this man? What are you or what were you arresting him for? And listen, listen to their response. It is so telling. When Pilate says, what are you charging this man with? Why are you arresting him? And listen to what they say. Oh. Huh. If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Do you hear how absurd that sounds? If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. See, that's, that's the pile they were shoveling and they were trying to bury Jesus in it. And here's one thing we have to guard ourselves against doing. As we consider all of these elements in chapter 18, all that's going on in the garden and now before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, as we're gonna see, one of the things we should, we should, we should never do is we should, we should never look at these religious leaders and think, praise God, I would never be like that. Because we have to guard against such arrogance. And, and I know me, I know myself, and it is, it is so easy to do what they did. They, they were just trying to protect what they thought was right they were they were just trying to protect the status quo they, they were protecting their comfort their power and I think we've all struggled with that at some point in our lives I think we've all been there we've chosen the side that serves our interests best. We're more, like I like to say, we're more like them than we are different from them. In one very real sense, every day, Jesus is standing before us on trial and now knowing what we know, what will we say to him? What will we do with him? Here are some speculations we can make about why all these people, I mean in this building moment, you talk about groupthink. Like I like to say, you talk about a bunch of sheeple. I mean, these folks are are right now, I mean they are they are the critical mass of groupthink why they rejected Jesus. We can speculate on some reasons. I think, I think we can rule out intellectual reasons. We, we never saw them sit down and, and make an intellectual case for or against, to think reasonably and logically for or against Jesus. That's not what they did and that's not, that's why, that's not why most people reject Jesus. I think with the exception of Annas, we can rule out personal reasons, none of them had a bad encounter or a negative encounter or a hurtful encounter with Jesus. Today, people might use that as an excuse for rejecting Jesus. People will say, I, why would I follow Jesus? I know some of his followers and I don't like them too much. People use that as an excuse. People have known a Christian who has hurt them. They've known a church that has hurt them. They've known a pastor that has hurt them. But see, that's that's usually not the main reason people reject Jesus Christ. I I think one of the big reasons that people reject Jesus Christ is they don't want to change. I think there there are people who want to follow their own heart I think there are people who want to be masters of their own lives. And so the thing is, when you come to Jesus Christ, he demands change. There's a song we sing, he, he demands my whole, my life, my all. Something like that, my soul, my life, my all. He demands all of us. And, and there, are, there, are, there are some people who they like the idea of Jesus, but they want to, let me just keep him at arm's length. Don't want to get too crazy over Jesus now. Just give me a little bit of Jesus, but not too much, because that might stir things up. Jesus does bring change to people's lives. And when you follow Christ, sacrifice is prominent. When you follow Christ, selflessness is, is prominent but when some people are comfortable where they are don't want to move off that I'm comfortable right where I'm in right now so here's something you might want to write down Side, little side note: Don't write this down yet. <laughs> I think I think that's why. See, Nicodemus, God, Nicodemus was a, a he was a good-hearted man, and 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 he knew who Jesus was, and and I think Nicodemus, remember, if you remember him, he he came to Jesus in the night. He didn't want the pushback he would get from other religious leaders if they saw him talking to Jesus. But Nicodemus came to Jesus and and he knew, he knew, but but on the other hand, the cost cost was too great for him. The sacrifices he would have to make, what he might lose was just too much for him. So here's something you might wanna write down. If I'm going to grow, then I have to embrace the change Jesus brings to my life. If I'm going to grow, then I have to embrace the change Jesus brings to my life. And that's, that's where we're going to stop. We're going to finish chapter 18 next week before we move on to chapter 19. But in the meantime, in the meantime, I'm going to give you a little homework. We just don't get enough homework in church anymore, do we? I'm going to give you a little homework. Think of of three things that God wants you to change about your life. I'll do it this way. Think of three things. And I know some of you are thinking probably right now, I can think of three things I'd like God to change about somebody else's life. Well, we're not doing that. Think of three things that you sense God wants to change about your life. Maybe, maybe it's a habit. Hmm? Maybe it's an attitude. Remember, one of the things we talk about a lot here at Covenant Church is, is being a Galatians 5, 22 through 23 church where we, we reflect Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, self-control, all those things. Maybe when you think about your life, maybe there are times where those things aren't front and center. And so God's asking you to be more embracing of those kinds of things. So maybe it's an attitude. Maybe, maybe it's something about your job and God is calling you to change. Maybe it's something about toxic people in your life that God is calling you to change. Maybe it's a new healthy habit that God wants you to develop. Maybe, maybe it's, it's a sin. It's one of these, we all have them I think. It's, it's one of these quiet private sins that, that in the big picture nobody really gets hurt but we know it's wrong. But it's our little sin and so we hang on to it, it's a pet sin. Maybe you need to deal with that. Maybe you've spread yourself too thin and you have to cut back, except at church, any place else. But every place, really. Even church. Maybe you've spread yourself too thin and you need to cut back. Think, think this week of, of, of three things that God wants you to change in your life and then work on changing them. them. If you, if you take that challenge, you'll probably surprise be surprised at the great joy that God brings into your life. When you work on those things, you'll be surprised at the great sense of joy that that will bring to your life. See what God is up to in your life. Let's all stand and sing now. Visit us on the web at tecumsehcove.org. That's T-E-C-U-M-S-E-H-C-O-V-E dot O-R-G.